Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cultivating Healthy and Vibrant Workplaces. Firstly, I want to thank you, our listener, for tuning into our monthly series. It really does mean everything, and we would love it if you would share our series on social, especially those episodes that really resonate with you. Now, today's guest is someone I was introduced to through another podcast. He has an inspiring and story to share and tactical perspectives and experiences regarding burnout and how leaders might do their part to, I guess, as I would put it, help break the stigma of mental health in our workplaces. So he is the one and only Newton Chin, a director of health and performance at Google. And I hope I said your name correctly. Just correct me if I didn't. Yes, that is correct. You nailed it. Okay, thank you. So now by way of formal introduction, and I'm so sure many of you may already know of Newton, but he is a husband and father, a competitive power lifter, which I'll share more in just a minute. He is also the director of health and performance at Google. And he spent his 14 year career at Google, developing, launching and scaling global programs aimed at helping Googlers to thrive. Today, he oversees a global portfolio of Google's physical and digital health and well-being amenities, and he spends much of his time exploring how Google can leverage spaces and services, community, culture, and technology to support the physical, mental, social, and spiritual health of Googlers. I love that name, Googlers, (laughs) their families and their neighborhoods. Now, as a power lifter, he has set multiple world U.S., and California state records, and as a world and four-time U.S. national champion. And just as a side note, I've seen you, Newton, on um, LinkedIn when your videos, and uh, it's it's pretty impressive. (laughs) Thank you. And Yeah, he takes a special interest in the intersections of human performance and spirituality and is an advocate for speaking vulnerably about mental health, which you will see him in action in just a second, or hear him in action, I guess. So Newton earned a BS in electrical engineering from University of Illinois, um, Urbana Campaign. I'm not sure if I'm saying Cham- uh, Urbana Champagne, like, oh. like the French beverage. Oh, okay. There you go. And an MBA from University of California in Berkeley. So welcome, Newton, to the show. How are Lisa, you? very excited to be here. Uh, I'm doing great. Yeah, that's good. So I'm going to start off. I always like to start off our, our interviews for our podcast. Um, talking about your own, you know, we're going to talk a lot about you at the start, but, but, you know, being a health and performance director at Google and an elite athlete, as we just shared, how do you like to keep your mind and body and spirit healthy and fit? And I always like to really focus in on like morning wellness routines or rituals. Do you have any of them? Oh, I absolutely do. And I'll, I'll tell you the ideal routine because having two young kids, it gets, it gets knocked aside. And if, if you want to, I can talk about how when the routine doesn't happen, what do I do instead oh, to yes. bring it back hey, together? Give it to us all. But the ideal routine is that my daughters will wake up somewhere between 7.30, 7.45 a.m. So I might wake up at 6 a.m. I come to my office I do about 10 minutes of meditation. I go through about another 10 minute, uh, 10 minutes of looking at um, a slide deck I have that's full of, it, it's combo of vision board of, you know, what would I like my life to build into someday? 
and then also some affirmations about like who do I need to be and what do I need to believe and think in order to have that happen someday. And so I, I go through that um, 10 minutes. After that, I come downstairs, I get the coffee going. Uh, I try to make a pour over coffee for, usually it's just for myself. My wife doesn't drink as much coffee except on Wednesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Okay. So if it's Wednesday, <laughs> Saturday, or Sunday, I make two pour over oh, coffees. I love it. Um, I feed our cats. I scoop the cat litter. And then um, from there, I make my own breakfast. And then usually by that time, then the kids are starting to get up. So then it's go time. All right. And how old are they? One is 16 months and the older one will be six in August. Oh, no, in September, excuse oh, me. Sweet. Nice. Yeah. It's a really fun time. I bet. Yeah. So you really do have it. You really sound like you have it. Are you a ritualistic person by nature? I am. Yeah. I, I love routine, which makes parenting really challenging for me, <laughs> I bet. especially at this phase. Uh, but I, it, it also, it's making me much better at contingency planning. Cause yeah. like, I have to think about like, okay, if the routine gets knocked off, how are you going to recover and get your mojo back for the rest of the, of the day? Oh, I love it. And that's like a perfect segue now into, you know, help us transition into our discussion of burnout. Cause you know, again, these things can work for us or against us, right? And you can probably yeah. speak to that, but you know, yeah. So let's just jump right in and um, talk about the burnout, because this is a big part of our discussion today, burnout among high performing leaders, especially executives and senior leaders, uh, such as yourself, and, and how they or we can help break the stigma of confronting mental health in our workplaces. So that's really the landscape, you know, um, lens from we're going to speak to here today. And so how about sharing a little bit about your burnout journey? And that's, again, how I first learned of you, you were sharing your burnout journey on another podcast. And you know, any contributing factors that contributed, of course, to it, but also, and I'm sorry, this is kind of a multi-part, multiple-part question, but any trepidations you may have had in even requesting a mental health leave? And then, of course, lastly, how are you doing today? So that's a three-part, like, you know, your burnout journey, contributing factors, trepidations around asking about a leave, and then how are you doing today? Sure. So I'll, I'll tell you my, my whole journey to burnout, mm -hmm. and then uh, we'll, I'll, I'll stop somewhere around coming back and okay. that leads to what I've been doing recently, which is speaking, speaking and telling my story around burnout specifically to try to drive this conversation around reducing stigma around mental health and burnout in the workplace. Sounds good. So my story, let's dial back all the way to March, 2020, the beginning of the pandemic. Now it's, it's crazy to think that was three years ago. But so if we go back three years, if you'll remember, um, suddenly the entire world shut down and we're all sent home from work and we're all living under this kind of unknown cloud of fear of this thing called COVID-19, where we didn't know what was the risk to us, what was the risk to our loved ones, especially those who might be most at risk, such as, you know, aging parents or our children. Um, now, what I did know was that this was a time of crisis. And so my parents always taught me and they raised me that in a time of crisis, that's when you show up and you lean in and you lead. So within Google, we were all sent home. But as director of health and performance, I oversee a bunch of amenities to support the health and well-being of our Google employees. And most of those were based on site. 
So almost overnight, we pivoted as many of those we could to digital format so we could reach Google employees in their homes. Across our broader organization, my team took on additional responsibilities because just more help was needed. And then we spent even more time just checking in on each other and asking, how are you doing? And it all felt exhilarating, but exhausting. And ultimately, we, we kept going because it was the right thing to do. Summer of 2020, that's when some of the first big red flags appeared. And I was a meeting, in a meeting with my vice president's team. And we're all still on video. We're going through the thumbnails, just answering the question, how are you doing? And it got to me. And I don't know why, but I, I, I felt compelled to say something real. And it felt like a dam broke inside me. And I started to cry. And I said, right now, I'm struggling because the number of days that I'm proud of how I'm showing up as a father is going down. And I don't know how to turn that around. And when I said that, I was horrified for two reasons. One is that I had just violated the social norm you know, for the workplace and, and for, for men in the US of showing like this high level of vulnerability. So first I was incredibly self-conscious of like, oh my gosh, did I just say that out loud? And then the second reason I was horrified, it was those words came out of my mouth. I didn't know they were in there. Once I said them out loud, I couldn't unhear them and I knew they were true. And so I said it, my team, so many people immediately reached out to me via chat, via email to check in and say like, hey, are you okay? Is there anything I can do? And so culturally, it was a really positive moment for me. But then in terms of my experience, like I left horrified, um, but still stuck, like I didn't know what to do. So I kept pushing and I just kept pushing and I tried to pretend like that never happened. By fall, I took on more responsibilities that essentially doubled my workload. November of 2020 was when I first started to just struggle to get out of bed in the morning. April 2021 was when there was, no, February 2021 was the first time there was a morning where I physically couldn't get out of bed because I was just paralyzed with this sense of dread. Like it just felt like this overwhelming weight and this danger. And so I just stayed curled up in a ball for as long as I could. At that point, I thought, okay, something's really wrong. So I went to our employee assistance provider and um, I found a therapist about a, a month later. And what he told me was that I was exhibiting early signs of burnout. And my mentality was like, okay, well, I know what this is now. I can work through it. So I kept pushing and I kept pushing. And I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere with the current therapist. So I, I was referred to another one by a friend at Google. And this new therapist, when, during our intake, he put me through, um, you know, evaluation. And he said, you're exhibiting major symptoms of depression and anxiety. And I was just bewildered. I, I said, what are you talking about? Like, I, isn't this just the way it feels to work hard? And he said, yes. It can feel that way, but this is also depression and anxiety. And so my aha was, uh, it was two things. One, I wasn't even aware of what 
depression felt like or what anxiety felt like because I was just so used to pushing through it. And then the, the other thing that frightened me was that I had all said this was due to the pandemic and the world was a really hard place. I had felt these feelings throughout my life as, since as early as high school before the pandemic. And so that brought up a lot of questions about my mental health. Now, November 2021, I was on stage about to give a keynote at a Google Health and Wellbeing conference. And this was like this pinnacle moment for my career where I was going to talk about these amazing opportunities between Google technology and health and well-being. But knowing how many people were struggling with mental health, knowing the data, and knowing where I was, that felt completely inauthentic. So three days before the keynote, I threw out my entire plan and I got up there and I told everyone what was really going on, which was I was struggling with depression and anxiety. I would soon be going out on mental health leave. And I knew so many others were suffering just like me. And if this was a health and well-being conference, for the moment we were in, that is what we needed to talk about. And then I went on leave in January of 2022, finally. I know like what I just described there, it's my story, yeah. but it matches the arc of so many other oh, people's stories so that they might be in right now. Like and the, you know, the feeling of I push, I push, I push. I mean, I've lost my mom to a depression. I, it's very close to home. Um, and I think many of us, we don't have to look beyond, you know, uh, one generation maybe or friends and family who they've lost their lives to depression or you know, um, are going through it or have, right? I just love how you had the presence of mind to pivot and be really responsive. I use that word a lot in workplace wellness, be really responsive. And mm. that was the quintessential responsiveness, being responsive to what you knew and really felt in your heart that the audience needed to hear. Yeah, I, I, it doesn't come natural to me. So for your audience, for your, uh, the, yeah, for your audience's awareness, I'm... Yeah. Um, I'm uh, of a traditional Asian American upbringing. Yes. We never talked about mental health. Yes. So, and, and my parents never really, there was a, a lot of talk around mental toughness. Right. So you didn't show weakness. So that was definitely not modeled for me from that standpoint. And then I actually grew up in a small farm city in Illinois called Macomb. And so the culture there, like, we never use the term mental health. Or even maybe reaching out to a therapist even. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. actually, I didn't know what a therapist was. Right. So it, when you ask like, was that natural to me or was it even modeled to me? Like, right. it's just a hard no across okay. the board. I think you might have already touched on it, but just describe for our audience, our listeners, the process. I mean, any game, sharing what you're comfortable in sharing, but how did you actually, I don't know if getting the courage is the right word, but how did you get that? maybe the strength to approach you're the director of wellness for goodness sake. Right. And you're going to say, you you want to go on mental leave, no judgment there. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. the, the, the optics of it. Right. And the reality, how was that for you? And, and how, what was the response? Okay. Yeah. 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 So I'll, I'll go a little bit into what I actually did on, yeah. while on leave. Yeah, um, sure. And well, can we uh, even I, take it a back step for just yeah. a second? And, Am, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Yeah, well, hey, go for it. <laughs> go for it. So for context, for your um, for your audience, yeah. 
if you look at my resume, I'm a world champion powerlifter, which yeah. requires you to think very thoughtfully ag- across movement, nutrition, your mindset, yeah. all of that, the stress management, it has to be in sync to do that well. I've you know, been the director of health and performance at Google for years, and I have right. years of experience in the field. Looking at that and knowing that and knowing I was in a bad place, like you feel like the biggest fuck up in the world. Yeah, you must have had so many conflicting emotions going on within you. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of like I can understand someone else who's not in the field, but I knew all the expertise. Yeah, I still ended up in a bad place. So you yeah. you find like a even higher level of ways to beat yourself up yeah. about it. Yeah, like and depression. So- yeah, depression and anxiety and burnout knows no limits or bounds. Yeah, and and so this this kind of goes to to stigma where there's um there's an author I can't remember the name of his book but his name is Mike Veeny V E N Y and he talks a lot about mental health stigma and he, he says like well let's go into that word what do we really mean and he goes to the feeling of shame right it's like knowing that you're in a bad place and feeling ashamed about it so then you hide it and then you go into a worse place and then that has knock on effects throughout your life and you feel even deeper shame. And that's what I was feeling. I was Did it just take you a while to get that courage or strength to even approach your leadership to ask for a mental health leave? Or how did you even, can you just paint a picture, you know, sharing again what you're comfortable with, like even the discussion of how the, the wording you use, because this may be a value to those who need to do the same or are really on the fence about doing the same, right? Yeah. So I, I had a few um, sources of support to help me navigate this first and just think this through. Yeah. And the thing I'll say, at least for me, if, if my boss is listening, he was incredibly supportive. And so nice. there were so many more blockers inside me, like there <laughs> were no blockers on his side. Lovely. Wonderful. And so first I talked to a bunch of friends who had also gone on leave and they yeah. talked to me through the process. They talked to me through the downsides of, Hey, here's what it looked like. Be- because I didn't go on leave soon enough. Like a, a friend of mine, she actually, one day she lost her vision because oh she was just so overwhelmed with stress. Yeah. So I didn't get there. Um, but, but hearing those stories, it was, it was a good warning. For me, there were a few mo- motivators that made it more immediate. Personally, on the family side, I was just feeling such guilt about not being the father and the husband that I thought my family deserved. And that was the bottom line. And I could basically, I had that feeling every day and that just wears on you. Mm-hmm. So eventually it, there was a, a feeling of like, something's got to give because they deserve more. That comes from a place of love. The other side of it was now it, it was, it was a little more strategic where I, I, was asking my therapist like, well, what happens if I don't go on leave? Like, can I work through this? Mm. And he said, well, maybe you can. But what he often sees is the result is instead of going on leave, you try to power through it. Right. And what could have been an eight week leave turns into a six to 12 month leave. Right. And, and you go from like a pretty bad place to like, you're in a really bad place now. Like this turns into some deep wounding and healing. That's going to take a while. Right. And so now if I just put on my business person hat, I said, okay, if, if I just think about likely outcomes from this, what's the responsible thing to do here? And so at that point, I, I said like, okay, 
I'm going to go talk to my boss about this. And I, I laid it out for him in, in that fashion. I said, so I, I need to make you aware. I have been going to first the employee assistance provider and then to therapy as I've been struggling with my mental health. Both have told me I'm so showing early signs of burnout. And my therapist has said, recommended that I should strongly consider going on leave. And the way he has said it is, uh, if I go on leave, we hope I will feel better in maybe six to eight weeks. If I push through, I might push through, but I might end up on leave for six to 12 months or even longer. And so I feel like the responsible thing to do for both the organization, for my family, for myself, is to go on leave. Mm. And, you know, my, I, I made all the promises to work with him through this, to figure out the logistics. You know, I don't think he needed to hear any of that. He right. just wanted me to be okay. Nice. Um, th all that stuff was, was more, frankly, to feel like I was covering my ass. Right. There's probably so many people who are hopefully going to listen to this and listen to your story. And A, maybe get the inspiration and courage. Um, can I just ask a question? Like, you know, again, I'm not, you're not a therapist yourself, obviously, but let's just say someone was like, okay, I'm going to go on leave or I'm going to try and do this with a therapist or approach my organization about going on leave prior to actually consulting with a therapist first. What would be your suggestion or advice around that? And again, so I guess just speaking from your own experience, but. So, so they'd like to approach their organization to go on leave is what you're asking? Yeah, but, but maybe prior to or without in the absence of actually speaking to a, a therapist or a professional first. Hmm. For me, I, I can only speak to my own experience. Right, exactly. what, what helped me was my starting point was I had friends who had navigated that system specifically at Google. Right. And so while it wasn't with specifically my team and my boss, they had told me like, okay, here's how I had that conversation. Here's how I navigated our internal leave system and how I had to work with um, professionals like a therapist, like a general practitioner to get all the paperwork in line. Okay. And so it, 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 it's almost, it doesn't matter where you start. I'd say start investigating so you understand within your system, how does this happen? Yeah. Like the, the thing I tell people when they feel stuck is, it doesn't matter where you go, like yeah. find one way to take one step forward and make progress. Yeah. And I can um, speak to, I was speaking to a family member who was a supervisor and he um, actually helped one of his direct reports, you know, uh, reach out to the EAP program and stuff. So maybe, you know, if you have a real good relationship with your supervisor, your manager, you know, just be upfront and say, can you help me? I'm stuck. I need help. And if they can't, then maybe they can direct you. So there's always, the bottom line is there's always someone there who can help you. You just have to ask, right? Yeah. There, so uh, one, one anecdote or piece of anecdotal data that I'll offer is as I've come back to work and told my story, what happens is people both from within my team who, who have been you know, struggling as well, they've reached out to me. And I think that that makes sense. That's exactly what I want is, right. hey, I, I want to drive away the stigma and make it clear. It's okay to take steps to, to take care of yourself. The thing that's been maybe more eye-opening is the number of people who reached out to me who are not on my team. And on the one hand, I'm really happy I can be there for them and help guide them. Right. On the other hand, the the worry is, I'm like, do you feel safe to have this conversation within your team? 
within the group of people that you spend the most time in your, where your work matters most? And for many of them, I think the answer is no. And it's not that the rest of the team has necessarily signaled like we're not going to accept this, but there's just such a high level of stigma and fear, even in a really progressive place like Google. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, let's, we're at present day now. Um, Okay. No, actually, you know what? Let's just step back a bit. Um, During your leave, then what did you do? You know, share again what you're comfortable sharing. What did you do to get yourself back on the path of health and well-being that you could then feel it's the right time then at some point to to go to your back to work? So I'll I'll break this into a few periods. There's the, the beginning period of stuff I thought I should do that did not work. And uh, this is kind of like the the warning to everyone of like, hey, your therapist is going to tell you do A, B, and C. Right. Listen to them. Me being, you know, who I am. Being a power lifter. <laughs> yes, I tried to power through it. I thought, okay, <laughs> you know course. what? I'm going to have a plan. I'm going to journal. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. meditate. I'm going to... Um, listen uh, to podcasts. You mentioned listen, that. You li- pod- yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen to podcasts. I'll keep up with the training and exercise. And I was told like, hey, just don't do anything. It's going to take two to three weeks just for your brain to cool down. And once the noise is gone, you're going to be able to think more clearly about what you need to do to heal. I didn't believe that. I thought I could systematically work through the noise. What I found was after about a week and a half, it was clear like I had just created a new job for myself. Like it was executing the Newton Chang self-healing program. And it was going nowhere. And so eventually what I did was say, okay, each day I'm going to take it step by step. I'm going to keep the exercise and the meditation. I'm going to keep just 30 minutes of journaling. And I will schedule nothing else. I I will let myself explore. If I just want to veg on the couch, I will. If I want to go for a hike, I will. And once I started doing that, by about week three, the noise level in my head, it, I didn't realize it was at a 10, but it started to drop. And suddenly there was, I could hear myself again. And when you say noise level, is it like voices talking to you or, you know, what? what? It, it just like ongoing soundtrack of anxious thoughts. Chatter and internal of, chatter. Yeah, yeah of yeah. like work, life, right. uh, fears. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and eventually that got quiet enough to, at first, it, it's, it's like a muscle, a tense muscle, finally relaxing after years. Yeah. So at first it was, the, the big aha was just to say, oh, that's not necessarily a natural state for my brain. Like, I didn't know that. So what it, my aha was like, I've been running on um, fueled by anxiety for I don't know how many years. And then second, once there was the noise was lowered, I had to start asking some hard questions about, okay, well, if the noise, that's not my reality, what's in there? Like, who are you if you put aside all your labels? And so now I I started to do a few things. Um, The most impactful was that I reconnected with two friends who knew me much earlier in life. And we had this deep friendship. And so we could just kind of go there really fast. Um, we were all doing our own work on ourselves. You know, we, we've all been through life challenges, gone through various forms of therapy, and we just kind of shared about it. But you could see it through the lens of like, oh, you knew me when I was just 
some screw up in my 20s. Yeah. You can let down all the pretenses, right? All the pretenses were gone. Yeah. Yeah. And so just reconnecting with that part of me who's like, it's still there. It still has a hand on the wheel every day. Reconnecting with that um, was deep and provided a lot of clarity. The other thing I had to grapple with was where were all these anxious thoughts coming from that were driving me to do more and more and more? And then asking this question of like, where are they coming from? And if I don't do more, what am I afraid will happen? And I had to come to grips and I, I continue to work through it. There's a, a, a few things. I think um, the, the term intergenerational trauma gets thrown around a lot. Uh, I'm not expert enough to use that deftly. So I'm just going to say the way I was raised was to be deeply worried that we will run out of money. And so part of this is there's this weird survival instinct, even though financially, if I look at our finances spreadsheet, we're doing fine. We have contingencies built in. Even though those, those numbers are there, I have a deep fear that we will somehow run out of money. Uh, I will not be able to take care of the family and therefore I have to keep pushing. That's one thing. The other one that was much harder to confront is that I went through what I came to learn was psychological abuse as a child. Um, and that had a much heavier effect on me than I thought. Like my narrative I had, I had told myself was like, oh, that was just all kids go through that. And then one day I decided well, what's the line between bullying and abuse? And so I started Googling, then I started reading and it said, well, when it looks like this, it's abuse. And when it looks like this, it's bullying. And I pretty much checked every box in the abuse column. And then I started reading like, well, what is the outcome of that? Like, what, how does that affect a person? And there were things like, well, mental health struggles, specifically deep anxiety and a deep uh, drive for people pleasing, which I knew I had, but I thought it was coming from a place of love. But what I could see was it was coming from definitely a place of fear of not wanting to go through things like that abuse again and seeing, can I, can I keep people around me happy? Mm-hmm. And that was really hard to face because it rewrote a major script of what my childhood was like. Wow. You did do a lot of work. <laughs> good for yeah. you. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. How long did it take you to come to all these realizations? Was it within those first few weeks or by the end of your eight week period or however long you're on leave or. By then I was probably in about week five. Mm. And so I, I think in terms of the, escalation of it um it was kind of like i felt like i was dawdling i was dawdling i was dawdling aside from you know um spending time with your family obviously and being, being with your therapist and your sessions what else did you do just quickly then to, to fill your days to, you know in a constructive way um well i parenting didn't go away so <laughs> no, for still, sure. still a significant parenting load um i was still scheduled to compete at a major powerlifting competition in March. Okay. Yeah. And that to me was uh, like kind of like a personally aspirational thing. It was for an event called the Arnold, 
and that's named after the Arnold, like yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Sure. Yeah. And so it was always a dream of me t- of mine to be invited to that event and to compete. And I, that year I had landed the invitation. Nice. And so I said, I don't care if I'm on leave, like I'm going to go compete at the Arnold. Good for you. So I kept up the training, kept up the meditation and the journaling. Um, aside from that, uh, I ran kind of like the tasks of day to day. I stayed much more on top of my sleep. Mm-hmm. I tried to avoid alcohol mm-hmm. uh, a lot more. So w- one thing that was an aha for me was the first week I went on leave, uh, not knowing exactly what to do. The first thing I did was I went to hang out with my my drinking buddy friend. Okay. And we didn't go on a bender or anything. But then after a day or two, I had to ask myself, why was there your first reflex to pick up a drink? Yeah. Well, hey, it was during the COVID period. We were all drinking a little more in excess, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it, it yeah. definitely. But it, it was, yeah. it, it was like a little alarming. Like I had to ask, like, is alcohol playing an outsized role in your life? Right. And so, um, I don't think I had a problem there, but I put up some guardrails around alcohol. What new wellness or maybe even stress mastery practices did you adopt or now embrace to ideally? or even work practice to help prevent going into a relapse. And I'm assuming now that, you know, you obviously you've, I'm assuming you've come out on the other side and you're much healthier, stronger mentally and emotionally and physically today. And so, yeah, just paint a picture for us how you are today. And again, those wellness or emotional, physical stress mastery practices that have really helped you. I'm not sure how much of this will be applicable to your audience. Cause as a, a competitive power lifter, I've, I've concentrated a lot of my energy there, but no, what hey, I'm finding is, good. yeah, but v- via this, this mental health journey of continually working on my mental health. And when I talk about that, if, if I, if I put aside the term of just like working on my mental health and instead say, I spend a lot more time now trying to understand who am I and what do I really want? If I put aside all my commitments in life and I put aside the, what people say I should want, like, no, what do you want? Mm. That's one thing. Can you get clear on it? And then two, as uh, you hear the term healing a lot. Right. And my mental model goes to something like a wound healing. And if it sounds like, uh, you know, I don't know, taking time off and giving something a break. That's not my understanding of it all at now. I think of it as if I have this clarity around who am I and what do I want? Healing to me is how do I reintegrate that into my life to say more of my life is built around that and to start to cut out the parts to say, and the things that I don't want that I've been told I need or that I, I'm told I should want, mm-hmm. how do I start cutting those things out of my life? Yeah. And can I ask you to, um, along those lines from, again, from your speaking from your personal experience, is there a, maybe this is a rhetorical question, but is there a finite start and end point to a burnout journey? For me? No. Okay. Once someone who's suffered burnout, do you find that you always have to keep yourself in check now? That's maybe one way of putting it. Yes. I, I, I definitely do. And I, if you ask me again in five or 10 years while I continue this work, maybe the answer will be no. But, you know. The work if, being the work on yourself personally, you mean? or Yes. Yeah. And so I'll say, you know, I've been in therapy now for, let's say, two years. Right. Um, 
I would say either the answer is no, or I'm not there yet. Okay. Okay. Uh, hey, that's, that's real. That's real. So moving a little forward then, in another podcast, as I said, mentioned before, you, you indicated that when you referenced your leave and your request to leave as a mental health leave, some of the leadership asked you then during or maybe coming back, how was your sabbatical? Now, did I get that correct? Was that something that you want to speak to? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it, just to be clear, it was it was not necessarily in my organization. Some people in my organization would reframe my leave as a sabbatical. Okay. Uh, other people at other organizations that I talked to who knew I went on leave, they would also do that. And I took that as this kind of peculiar behavior. I was, uh, and I thought, like, why are people doing that? Like, I, I have using, openly meaning, said mental using health the word, leave. Yeah, using the word sabbatical as opposed to mental health leave, right? Yeah. yeah and I think there's, m- my narrative is there's two reasons. One is they weren't clear on my boundary around how open I wanted to be about that. Okay. E- even though I'd been really open. And so it was, it came from a, a place of care and respect Okay. of right, like, yeah. I don't know if you have a boundary there, so I'm not going to violate it. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I think too, there's just a, still a general fear and touchiness around that topic to say, no one wants to put it on the table when it pertains to a specific person, because it feels like too personal and too shameful. And so it, it was kind of like there were trying to avoid the shame they assumed that I might be feeling. Was there ever a a thought or a concern that maybe, you know, Hey, you're Google, like, you know, you're the wellness director at Google and that from a leadership perspective that they as a leader or leadership team or as an organization failed you or maybe failed other employees in terms of having to go off on a mental leave. And I'm not suggesting that at all, but was it ever, that question ever popped in your mind or, or interpretation of why they might be hesitant to really openly ask about your mental health as opposed to using the word sabbatical. Do you, do you understand where I'm going with the question there? Yeah. 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 I, I think there's like, you know, if I, if I think about there's the, the devil on one of your shoulders whispering in your ear and there's the yeah. angel on the other yeah. shoulder. If I think of there's like the, um, the devil on my shoulder it's kind of whispering the victim mindset into my head of saying like, well, you ended up in a bad place because if things were better run, if there was more clarity, if there was better resourcing, you wouldn't have gotten to this place. But then the angel who angel's not the right term because this is going to be some pretty harsh accountability. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The angel is whispering in my ear saying, did anyone force you to say yes to any of those things? Right. In fact, did you actually raise your hand for some of those things? Because that's kind of who you've been for your entire career. And did you have agency to say no? And the honest answer was like, no one forced me, nor could they. And right. yes, I absolutely had agencies to say no. These are all my choices. Uh-huh. And so this now puts me back in to both like, I think an accountability standpoint, but also an empowered standpoint of saying, if these are my choices, I can change my reality. I can choose other things. Oh, I love that. And can I just pivot for a second? I was just listening, as I was saying to a podcast, it's our beloved Simon Sinek. And he was saying that, um, and you're probably not in this age generation, but he said the younger generations today, they will leave a job before they'll have a hard conversation with their manager. (laughs) 
I I don't know if I've heard him say that, but I, maybe I've I've seen like a a social media post about it. But yeah, yeah. that sounds familiar. Yeah, um, and I just really yeah. struck me. And he said, you know. He said, how, how much trigonometry do we use today? But, you know, back in the day we were in school or grade school, maybe we should have more conversations around listening and having those hard conversations and developing skill sets because they're the skill sets that are going to get us through life and these hard times, right? Yes. Yes. So the credit, so much credit of the positive arc of my journey goes to my partner um, who she's, she's not the type to get out in front of an audience. So, um, we, we have this uncomfortable tension where I keep telling my story and then I make these loose references to her, even (laughs) though she's a massive, huge, positive part of this story. So to, to my partner, if you're hearing this, I'm not going to say your name, but (laughs) I'm giving you credit. Oh, there you go. Um, early in our marriage, she said, um, I want to go to, uh, marriage counseling. And I said, but we're doing fine. Like marriage counseling is expensive. Why would we do this? And she said, well, I want to do this work proactively. And so I said, okay, like I'll, I'll be open-minded about this. What I found was the marriage counseling is just really deep coaching on relationship building and management and navigation. And so now when people ask me, what is the best people management training you've ever been through? I say marriage counseling. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There, there's nothing offered in the workplace that's on par with that. And so um, this, this other question comes up a lot now that we're in the middle of a mental health epidemic. Right. People managers were, will ask me kind of like in a resentful way, like what? So now I have to be a therapist now? And, you know, therapist comes with like certain clinical standards. But my answer is, well, for the moment we're in, some of those skills are really going to help you. And so it's not common for some of those skills around active listening and motivational interviewing and things like that to be built into management trainings, but maybe they should be. What do you see as the biggest contributing factors to employee burnout today? I mean, again, speaking to what things we haven't already discussed, you know, especially now, let's just look where we are here, current state in this post-pandemic era. And, you know, for example, like one of the factors, of course, might be systemic or cultural contributors to burnout. So what, what are we getting right or not getting right, I guess, in our organizations? And really, how can we do better? Yeah, there, there's a huge number of factors. I think they get exacerbated at, you know, if you have a company where the work can be pretty intense and you're surrounded by really driven people, uh, especially in places like the tech sector, a lot of existing issues can get exacerbated, which, you know, further push um some of the struggles around mental health. But if I look um, kind of systemically, the, the ones, the big ones that are on my radar are uh, sometimes it gets framed as social health. Um, I, to go further into that, if you look at, there's a book called Together by Dr. Vivek Murthy, our Surgeon General in the US. And he talks about the increasing rates of loneliness uh, and the impacts on things like mental health. And so now if you look across our society and say like, well, what's driving loneliness? If I look at somewhere like Silicon Valley where I have worked for years, you have a lot of people uprooting from their communities to come work in a really intense environment. Now they have to invest a lot of time and energy at work with other people who are achievement driven and pushing and and working really hard. 
And so depending on your local team culture, Google, I think, does a fabulous job of helping at least build social connection within those teams. Um, but in a really intense environment, that can also be really challenging. Uh, so you've come in, you've lost your the community that you left. You come into a really intense environment where relationships, um, the culture supports building them, but you're also in a, like a really difficult, intense environment. And then once you leave work, you're like, well, what time have you invested to put down new roots? Because that takes time. So you've lost your old community. You've gone into an intense, stressful environment. You haven't found your new community. You've just lost like a massive support of your mental health, which is you know, meaningful social connection. Uh, and, you know, can I just jump in there? Um, again, coming back to the interview with Simon that I listened to, um, he was saying like, and, and, you know, we don't want to knock companies for putting in foosball tables or ping pong or whatever else. And I mean, I'm sure maybe Google has them and still has them, you know, in their on-site locations. But he said, that's really the young, younger generations. They see past that. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking for a, an organization, a job, a goal, a role, that aligns with their purpose, right? That comes back to mm -hmm. Simon's, you know, their why, right? And yes. I know that can really be eerie theory, maybe to a, a senior level leader to, to hear those things, but it's, it's so true. That's what our young ones, and if we're going to capitalize and, and attract and retain these top talents and these brilliant minds, right? Then, yeah. So, so you know, again, this aligns with what we were talking about, the contributing factors that there's a, a disconnect in some cases, right? Because yes. maybe that person, you know, the square peg in a round hole, they just weren't in the right job to begin with and couldn't have that hard conversation. So they leave, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yes. so yeah, what can you, what can you speak to that? Is that something you've experienced or in your organization? Well, yeah. So there's that, you, you touched on the second one. So there's a, um, a researcher out of university of Michigan, Vic Strecker. Uh, he wrote a book called life on purpose mm. and he's a professor of public health. But due to a personal tragedy in his own life um, that's documented in the book and it's just told in like heart-wrenching detail, he decided to, do, uh, first, he did a lot of work to, to figure out like, what is his own purpose? And then from there, he started to look at like, well, what are the intersections of health and well-being and meaning and purpose? And what you find there is there are these massive correlations between people who have a strong sense of meaning and purpose and good mental health or good physical health. And all of that also relates to social health because a lot of people find meaning and purpose in meaningful connection with one another. Those things are heavily related. And so if you think about our organizations, if they are not giving you a reason why you're spending all this time and energy there that aligns with who you are and with the value you want to create in the world, at a minimum, it's a huge missed opportunity. I think the greater problem is if the person is not getting that at the workplace and Americans are working more and more and more, mm -hmm. where are they getting connected with deep meaning and purpose in their life? Right. And if their social connections are strained, if, uh, institutions such as the church, like fewer and fewer people are going to yeah, church where yeah. they, maybe they felt connected to something greater before. Mm -hmm. um, are they finding it in other places? Yeah. And I believe the answer is increasingly no. At Google, and again, just speak to what you're comfortable in sharing, but we don't like check out part of ourselves when we come to the work. We 
intentionally or unintentionally, we bring our whole selves to work, right? Is that something that you promote in your organization and I guess through your workplace wellness programs and how do you manifest that? Yes, I, I think it, it gets um, largely framed under the acronym DEIB, okay. Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. Okay. And we see that as like key to like a, a very high priority, not just for our products, but also for our community at Google. And so if I think about our health and well-being programs, um, so a, a good example would be like our on-site fitness centers. Right. We always talk about like, well, how do we get more people into the gym so they'll use the programs? That brings up two questions. Like one is like, well, who feels included and who feels not included in the gym? Mm. If you if you just look look at a gym from a I don't know an an anthropological standpoint, it's a really weird place. Yeah. Like I I love the gym as a competitive powerlifter, but it's a very strange place. Yeah, it's a weird and dynamics go on at times, right? <laughs> yes, and so helping someone who's never been in there, um, who might come in and feel like I don't look like anyone in here, yeah. I don't know how any of these programs work, I've never done any of them, they're not going to feel included or like right. they belong. So that's one thing. And then now if you've overframed your way of getting people healthy as you must go to the gym, you've just excluded everyone who's already decided, well, I'm not a gym person. I'd like to do something else. Right. So we really strive to figure out how do we reach people outside the four walls of things like a gym? Mm -hmm. So uh, a, a smaller jump might be sports or dance or martial arts. Yeah. A bigger jump might be arts. Right. where we we actually have like multiple Google music groups such as orchestras oh, nice. or we have people who love paint it. or do photography. Love it. And all of those, you know, they, they keep you healthy in different ways. And do you um, structure them under like uh, employee resource groups or how do you, you know, organize and facilitate those groups? So there, uh, those uh, have some intersections. Okay. So uh, we, we run our programs around the specific activity, right. but then we like to partner with the employee resource groups. Nice. Like for example, um, May was mental health month as well as Asian American uh, and Pacific Islander heritage month. Right. And so for uh, we, we do a kind of like mini, mini show about, topics like mental health and so i came i came in to talk about my mental health journey as well as how that intersects with my asian american heritage oh, and nice. we paired that up with some of our offerings around cultural cooking classes and then we i'm also in a previous life i was a break dancer yeah i saw you actually, on linkedin that was cool yeah yeah heavy intersections we between the uh global breakdance community and the yeah. asian american community so I did my thing there as well. Yeah. Now looking today about the current status of, you know, the whole remote and hybrid and where are we going and more and more organizations now and leaders are wanting to see employees, you know, have more face time in the office, right? Um, where does Google stand on that? Again, if anything you could share and, and how, as a workplace wellness director, what's your role in that, if any? Yeah, so um, Google's Google stance is... On the one hand, we want people to have flexibility. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we truly believe that our culture runs best when we are together. 
So for the majority of employees, what that means is Mondays and Fridays are flexible. You can work from home. You can work from the office. You can work from a a third location if you'd like. Uh, Tuesday through Thursday, we'd like you together with uh, the rest of the Google community in the office. And this works great for some. Uh, Others get mixed results. And the most honest thing I can say is, we're kind of learning along with yeah. the whole world on this. It's, it's a big experiment. But okay. what, I've, what I do believe is that you do need to pick a lane. Mm-hmm. So if and you, yeah. Yeah. Do, yeah. Do you believe that organizations should be kind of decentralized in how they manage that within teams or departments? In my ideal world, and I'm going to take off my Google hat because I'll say Google as a company, we've, we've set our guidelines and we're figuring it out with everyone else. And now I'm just talking off the cuff. So this, these comments are not as a Google employee. Absolutely, yeah. I think for an organization as large as a Google or as large as, say, an Apple or an Amazon, and knowing where employees are geographically dispersed, I think it makes sense to first come with a common philosophy of, so for example, at Google, there's a strong beliefs of, hey, we are best when we are physically together. Mm -hmm. Second, now you can talk solutions of like, well, how are you going to facilitate that in a way that tries to get you the value of both a hybrid environment and an in-person environment? If, if, if you decide you want in-person offices, like some, some companies have gone full virtual. And so what I would say then is, well, one, if a team is all co-located in a location, then I would say, yeah, it might make sense to mandate come into the office a certain amount and let's be together. And I think what we're finding is when humans can be together, like that's still a valuable thing, which I very much appreciate and I experience every day. On the other hand, we're balancing a lot of complexity in life and people realize like, oh, if you can let me manage where I'm at and my schedule more, I can get more done for you in the short mm-hmm. term and done for my family, for myself. Right. So why would I not offer that value to, yeah. to the employee? In the context of we're talking about burnout, I guess there's really no easy answer, right? No easy solution or, uh, around this, but w- what in your opinion and experience is maybe the optimal solution again when we talk about burnout so that we don't we don't have this happening that employees are working from home they're working too much or they're coming to the site and they're used to working from home and now they're just feeling that they're getting frustrated and anxious and they're out looking for another organization that will allow them to work from home right so n- knowing that there's no easy solve for this i think the more accessible but not it's not going to be easy to do, but the more accessible solution is, are you facilitating or enabling your uh, employees to openly express their needs right. with one another? Yes. So are people yes. feeling seen and heard? Right. And the answer for the request might end up being a no, but if you've at least heard them and said, I understand you, I see what you're going through, and I'm sorry, I can't do that. Right. I don't think a lot of organizations even get to that. They're like, here's the policy. Like, right. you're, you're a grown-up. Good well, luck what to I, you. That's where it comes down to the decentralization of this whole issue of virtual working so that the, the manager or supervisor has latitude, right? And the authority, he's empowered to say, you know, this works for my team. 
let's not rock the, rock the boat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I have open dialogue and open communications with my employees around their needs. And the bottom line is, is we get the work done. We're meeting our deliverables, our goals. I mean, ultimately, that's what we want in an organization, right? Now, albeit when there's times when organizations have to coalesce, right? Um, we, we do that. But by and large, where there is some flexibility, yeah, I think the 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 issue is like flexibility is not binary. And mm. the moment you, let's say, the company picks a direction, especially the one where it says we all have to be together, um, someone is going to get disadvantaged. On the other hand, there could be huge value for many in the organization. And so, it's a complex problem where I think one of the the issues is like, well, one is like not not having a culture that facilitates that open communication where you can have the hard conversations. Right. And then two, I think um, this gets framed up really well in some of the writings around complexity theory by um, there's a, a woman, Jennifer Garvey Berger, who I really like her, her stuff around leadership development and expanding people's uh, thinking around complexity. Mm. And so on the one hand, if I say like, well, there's gotta be a solution, what's the right solution? I think you're screwed because there is no right solution. Right, right. Like that's not how complex problems work. But if instead I say, this is a complex problem, it will not be solved. Yeah. But over time we can do things to learn and to make it better or worse. Yeah. And we have these open conversations about that process. Like you can get somewhere over time and it's going to be uncomfortable but I think the big lie we tell ourselves is we're just getting it wrong. And if we can find the right solution, this whole problem goes away. Yeah, it's, like, it's being it does com- not. Yeah, being comfortable and getting in the messy, right? Moving ahead, like in talking about um, executives specifically, because we're doing a lot of work with executives now around executive wellness coaching. And I know in our coaching, we, we, we come across the whole burnout issue, even with, with senior leadership, of course. So do you believe executives, because there's more and more statistics research coming out and studies that our executives are experiencing increased burnout today. And, and, and when I asked my mentor, who was a former CEO of a hospital, he said, well, to be honest, as a CEO and our, my peers, we never even used the word burnout. We could be under a lot of stress. We could be going through hard times, but we never used the term burnout. So there's a couple of questions there. Like are executives, in your opinion, experiencing increased burnout today? And would they identify and even identify with the term burnout? So I think there's at least two things going on, and I, now I'm I'm going to I'm speculating a lot, and I just sure. want to make it clear: yeah, uh, no one should take what I said and reference it as research. I think there's two things going on now. Better researched is the data I see from Deloitte showing that um, I forget what percentage it was, something like seventy percent of executives in the C-suite are saying that they would rather have better well-being than more career advancement. Okay. To me, that is, I interpret that as like a very loud way of screaming uncle. Like, this is enough. I don't need more. Right. And so I would say if I think about an executive as, let's stop using the word executive and just say a human with higher levels of responsibility for more people and probably an even higher level of scrutiny and stigma. Like, yeah, I would guess many of them are experiencing even higher levels of burnout today. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's just so much and, and so much lands on the executive within a complex organization. Yeah. So I think part of the answer is yes. 
And then the other side, this is more a theory, and I'd be curious to see if this matches what what you see or others see, Mm -hmm. is there's probably some survivorship bias there, which means, hey, the people who have climbed to the top, there's probably some people who are just crazy resilient, and that's what's helped them get there, but they don't reflect your average employee. And so if their perspective colors what their beliefs are about the general population at the company, they might say, well, I'm doing fine. I bet others aren't doing that much worse. And that's reflected in recent data that McKinsey put out showing around, I I believe it was McKinsey. um, No, it's either Gallup or McKinsey. I can't remember, but they were showing um, the C-suites or the executive's perception of like how employees are doing with well-being versus the employees. Yeah. Huge disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that study. Yeah. So it's either there's a lack of, you know, good data or a good perspective, or there could be things like survivorship bias. Can I ask you, where where are you seeing that gap as you talk to uh, leaders and organizations? Um, My concern sometimes... They say I'm fine, but yet their definition of fine and mine would be different. I mean, it's it's the coping mechanisms are not the greatest. You know, like I'll coach uh, senior leaders who are literally eating a sandwich, just fine, eating a sandwich during our coaching session because they've been back-to-back meetings all day long. And I think like, you know, you could only put yourself at that pace for so long. Something is going to implode. Something's going to give, right? And yes, yeah. they have, you're right, they have honed a certain level of resiliency to get to where they are, right? But Sadly, you know, marriages break down, divorces ensue. Are they healthy? Are they well? I don't know. That's perhaps questionable, right? Are they putting aside all their personal well-being for the betterment of the company? In a lot of cases, yes. One executive told me his break, you know, his his form of decompressing is the steps he takes from his desk to going to the washroom during the day. And I thought, oh boy, we 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 need we can do better than that. Let's let's work on that, right? You know, and um, it's just the intense pace that worries me that, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that's kind of the territory, but does it need to be? And then I always use the term visible permission. So I, I talked about this in a, with an associate in another uh, podcast previous to this one that there's nothing I would love more than to see, and some do, I don't say they're not, but some do, um, you know, strap on their sneakers and go for a walk or take their team out for a walking meeting. And there are things like I say, I call them visible permission initiatives or activities that show our employees that yeah it's okay you know or this ceo is taking time and breaking bread with employees down in the cafeteria and he's eating a healthy lunch and maybe sitting amongst the the employees we're going to say we have a healthy work culture and we we try and model healthy work practices no one gets a pass right like i think all of us from senior leadership managers directors frontline supervisors whomever we all have to do our part and be supportive and and walk the talk yeah i I, so uh, that reminds me just a a personal anecdote on my my burnout journey my therapist before i went on leave maybe about four months before that he diagnosed me with what he called high functioning depression Mm. and here's an example what that looked like there was about a week before i delivered that keynote where i i changed the message I was actually at a world powerlifting championship. I got up super early that morning so that I could do compensation planning for an organization of 60 people. After that, I, uh, I was in the middle of heavily dehydrating myself so that I could make weight for that competition. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I went through weigh-ins. I went through a complicated process of rehydrating my body and eating the right things. I went and broke several world records and won a world championship. And then I went out and I had dinner with my family. I um, came across as joyful. I said all the right things. That was at the height of my struggles with depression. Wow. But I know how to, in spite of that, get stuff done. And then when I have to be with people, I know how to show up in a way that's going to make you feel comfortable, like I'm happy to be with you because that's what I've learned to do. And so I'm not a CEO. Like there's more, more and more levels above me at Google. Um, so I can only imagine, you know, some people are far more resilient than I am. Yeah. Yeah. And some people might be suppressing far more challenges than I am as well. Yeah. How much influence or impact can, in your opinion or experience, workplace wellness programs really have with respect to, if I can use it, put it this way, preventing employee and leader burnout? I think they can have a huge impact just by their presence. And if they persist and try to think about um, how do you build a movement and earn, you know, you often use the term like a bigger seat at the table. And I'll, I'll, frankly, I'll just say more political clout. You need more political clout yes. in that organization. Yes. The reason why I say that is um, I really like to reference a book called The Burnout Challenge by Christine Maslach, who was a professor over at Berkeley. And she's been studying burnout in organizations for literally decades. And so for many of us who work in workplace wellness, who have been instituting these programs, we look at the last few years and say, well, the numbers have gotten worse, specifically around mental health is what we're doing. Does it matter? Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, like, yes, it does. But our approach has to change. Right. And, and here's why. So I think the programs you run now, they can get you some wins. They get you some awareness. They keep you in the game. But where this needs to go is, according to Christine Maslach, uh, some of the uh, causes of burnout that she sees in at an organizational level. There are six. There's work overload, lack of control, insufficient rewards, breakdown of community, absence of fairness, and then value conflicts. Now, looking through those, those are all super complex. And you as a workplace wellness professional, you can't singularly change any of those. But if you can earn increasing political clout and get the ear of the right people, you can start to put these factors on the table. Yeah. You can build problem definition around, hey, what really needs to change around here in order for us to make progress? It's like what I call in our book, um, yeah, absolutely getting the seat. We actually give a couple examples and profiles of, of workplace wellness leaders who are doing that. One in which I actually interviewed her CHRO and profiled her in the book as well. Fascinating stories. And um, yeah, it, it's it's really, as to, to put it another way, as you said, um, becoming that strategic business partner advisor, right? And really getting yes. that seat at the table. And we talk a lot about that in our programs and in our executive wellness leadership program. And so um, is there any tactical advice before I move to my last question? Is there any tactical advice you might impart or offer workplace wellness leaders or workplace wellness consultants in terms of how they can become that strategic business partner and get that, that seat at the table? 
one of the books that has changed, or I'll, I'll offer two books. Um, one of the books that changed my thinking a lot around how to influence in a large organization, it's called The Challenger Customer. And it's not about workplace wellness at all. It's actually about B2B sales. So if I were coming to your organization and I wanted to sell you some IT software, it guides you on how do you find the right stakeholder in the organization to help you sell into that organization something like an IT software package where it's now it's, it's like a pretty big thing for the large organization. So if I think about workplace wellness and the scale that we need to go to drive change, it's of that scale. So the thing that I learned from there is how do I find the right person or people to influence who can help me make that big sale? Where if I go back to what Christine Maslach's talking about and I say like, well, this company needs to address work overload. That now affects how we do strategic planning and maybe some aspects of the strategy of the company. Like that's a big ask. Yeah. So how do I get a seat at the table to say like, hey, if we want to start, solve this workplace wellness thing, you need to address this core business thing. Yeah. So that's one thing. Yeah. Uh, that's one book. The other book that I like is, it's called DEI Deconstructed. And while it talks a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion, what I think it more importantly talks about is how do you build a movement within an organization? And so there's this concept of, are your efforts program-led? where you might develop a centralized program and then try to use the powers that be to propagate them out? Or are they movement-led, where you have an increasingly large core group of employees that are knit together by a mission that tried to organically drive change through the organization? I believe it has to be a little bit of both, based on what I've seen at Google and other organizations, where you need the centralized expertise yeah. so that people are, have some common approach that is highly credible you need the organic network too because companies, they may run according to the org chart, but oftentimes the power structures don't actually work that way. Right. And so you need to have a lot, the right of, lot of dotted know. lines. <laughs> a lot yes, of dotted lines. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah, a lot of dotted lines for sure. Um, wow, that's that's so great. And it, again, it speaks to everything I believe in and you're, you're singing my, my song here for sure. Um, so to wrap up now, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, you've been sharing, again, your mental health stories, you said, for over a year now. And in doing so, um, just, you know, a couple short words or sentences, you know, what insights have you gleaned from your audiences about their mental health and burnout? And uh, what's that experience like been like, I guess, for you in going out and doing these talks? So I'll offer one which hopefully will give people some confidence to maybe pierce through the stigma around mental health. I was invited to tell my mental health story to the larger organization that sits over my team. So it's an organization of about 1,100 employees distributed around the world. And so I was delivering that via a tiny laptop camera in LA to locations all around the world, but then primarily to there was a single conference room in Northern California Bay Area where most of our team sat. And a lot of my team was sitting in that room. And so I tell my mental health story and then I have no idea how it went because I can't see anyone's face because I'm talking to this tiny laptop camera. And my boss sends me a chat message and he says, the room is dead silent. Your words had impact. Wow. 
and, and on the one hand, I'm like, I'm, it's great. I had an impact. Like I have no idea. Did I just uh, embarrass myself? Did I, did I just chill the entire room? And so like, I, I was very confused, but then another friend who was in that room sent me a chat message and said, right now I'm hiding in the back of the room, choking back tears because for the first time in a long time, I feel seen. Oh, you give me goosebumps. <laughs> and, and yeah. And so then what happened after that messages like that one just rolled in for the rest of the day and the week. And these were all people I had known for years and who had known each other for years. And they were sitting right by each other and all hiding their struggles due to stigma. So if I look at the numbers, you know, whether you want to reference uh, McKinsey or Microsoft's uh, workplace research, it estimates about 50% of us are struggling with burnout globally. Mm. If you looked around the table at a meeting, you wouldn't see it. But I can say with high confidence that that number is probably right. Right. And we are all hiding it due to stigma. So let's just bring it all together. One nice red bow now. What's some imparting words for CEO, a workplace wellness leader, director, whomever, an employee, particularly leadership. Let's focus on leadership. If they're listening, hopefully, to this interview, what's a one or two pieces of advice or takeaways you might share? I, I would say um, I'm, I'm very hyper-focused on stigma. So stigma, if I think about this as it's a blanket of shame that's keeping you from having the hard conversations so that your employees can be at their best, how are you going to pierce that? I think you can do that a few ways. One, um, any messaging you have about support for mental health and employees taking care of themselves, you got to be super consistent on that. Like, it's very, very consistent. Two, even better, if you can model vulnerability and express your own challenges, yes, that gives people so much permission to take care of themselves and to express, at a minimum, express their own needs. And I've seen that happen over and over as I tell my story. And then third, I, I recognize that is a big step for many, and they're not ready to take it. And I get it. So if you can't do it directly, you need to be the biggest cheerleader for the person who is modeling it for the organization. Uh, even better, if, if, you can't, if you can't model the vulnerability directly, name that and say, I'm sorry, I'm not ready. I can't go there. But, you know, Because that's being, Jane, that's John, being vulnerable. Yeah, that's being yes. vulnerable. Brene Brown says that. Even just sharing, I can't be vulnerable, is being vulnerable, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's exactly that in practice. Yeah. And so there's, there's some mini step that you can take. But right now, your employees are watching to see what will you do in this moment because so many are struggling and we all know it. Yeah. Oh, this is just, uh, yeah, this has been amazing. Just wonderful. And, you know, thank you so much, Newton, uh, for joining me and our listeners and giving us so many great, uh, so much to think about and, and tactical advice, right? Because that's what I'm always after on how we can identify and master our personal work stressors as well as, you know, valuable suggestions as you just shared for senior leaders and workplace wellness leaders to embrace and I guess do their part. You know, all we can do is our small part, small or big, in helping prevent or mitigate burnout within our organizations. So um, how might someone get in touch with you if they wanted to reach out to you? Um, the two main ways I would do this are one, uh, search me on LinkedIn, so I assume the show notes will have my name there. Yes. So it'll show yep. the proper spelling. Yep. And then if you want to see my training journey, which 
heavily intersects with my beliefs around mental health and performance, uh, find me on Instagram. Wonderful. And I'm going to look for you on IG. And uh, yeah, we will have everything linked up in the show notes for sure. And so thank you again, Newton. Um, You know, in wrapping up this episode, uh, I really want to take this opportunity to once again, thank our podcast listeners for, for tuning in. And also for those who maybe have purchased our book or referred it to others, a big thank you. And if you'd like to learn more about our book, uh, Cultivating Healthy and Vibrant Workplaces, you can do it on our website, workplacewellnesscoe.com. It's really a, a tactical and actionable resource that showcases the global experiences and best practices of workplace wellness influencers and leaders and addresses even the topics uh, that we've talked about here today around executive burnout. So also be watching for upcoming episodes via our podcast page on, again, our website, workplacewellnesscoe.com or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks again, Newton. Stay healthy, everyone, and keep on keeping it real. Bye for now. Thank you.